Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Our Father, we are so grateful that you truly have resolved all things in your Son, that you did not leave this creation in its brokenness and its alienation, in its desolation. You did not leave it under the curse of death and destruction. But also, Father, that you did not simply wave a magic wand of sovereign power over the top of it, but that you acted in love, that you took upon yourself in the incarnate Son the brokenness, the desolation, the death of this creation that you so dearly love. You took that upon yourself in Jesus our Lord, and you put it to death in him. And you inaugurated a new creation, a renewal, that has him as the beginning, the head, the first fruits. But with the assurance through his resurrection that all things are to be renewed. And Father, as those who are a kind of first fruits in Christ, the true first fruit. We are those who have experienced the fruit of that intent, the fruit of that love, the fruit of that work. We, as your people, are the evidence of the triumph of your love. We are the evidence of a God who would not forsake his creation, of a God who has determined and acted and who in the last day will sum up everything in the heavens and the earth in Jesus our Lord. That all things are appointed for the life and the flourishing that you created them for and that that destiny will be realized. That is the gospel that we have heard, that we have believed, in which we stand, and by which we will be fully saved on that last day if we continue in it. Father, I pray that you would give each of us this day ears to hear. And as Chris exhorted us, that we will own your word to your church. Father, it's so easy for us to hide behind so many things. To hide behind even the presumption of, of a faith that has secured us. To hide behind our doctrinal understanding. To hide behind our religiosity. To hide behind our confidence that you are out there. Ready and waiting for a time when we may have to call on you. I pray, Father, that you would use this time as we gather to worship you in spirit and truth to truly continue this work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. We ask you by your good spirit to continue this work of renewal, this work of Christiformity, and give us hearts and minds that are eager to yield to that work, to walk in the Spirit. Meet us in this time, change us by it, strengthen us 
exhort us that we may be changed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the writer's practice, not inconsistent with the New Testament in general, is to follow up his instruction with uh, an exhortation, if you will, an application or, okay, a so what drawn from the things that he has dealt with. And we've spent several chapters with him drawing an elaborate uh, picture and and, uh, unfolding of Jesus, our great high priest, and the work that he has done and what he has accomplished And as we come to the the climax of that, he now says, okay, here's what you do with that. Here's the so what. And like every exhortation, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's intended to be a source of comfort and encouragement, but also a provocation to press on an opportunity to step back and to say, what have I done with Jesus, the great high priest? Where is the fruitfulness of that in my own knowledge of it, in my own experience of it? It's one thing to master all of the things that he has told us since chapter 4, But if it doesn't have this transformative work in us, then it falls short of the purpose for which it is given to us. So again, the writer moves us into a section of exhortation, and this will take us through the balance of chapter 10. It's a very uh, multifaceted, it's, it's a broad exhortation in which he kind of moves from one thing to the other, all very closely related. But I want, to under, uh, I want to deal with the first part of this today, which will take us uh, through the 25th verse. And essentially, um, what the writer's overarching concern is, he, he says, okay, what should you take away from understanding what God has accomplished in Jesus our Lord? What it means that he is the great high priest, not only in terms of his offering at Calvary, but in terms of his enthronement, his continuing to function as our great high priest. And I think we can say that his overarching concern through all of this is to call his readers to an active, living confidence in who this God is in the Messiah what he has accomplished, and what it means to actually live in him as the Messiah. And we can maybe put that in terms of one word, what it is to be, live lives of devotion. Devotion. He's already emphasized that, that the, the great accomplishment of Jesus as Messiah is this thing of sanctity. We have been set apart. God has taken a people to himself. We have been perfected in the sanctity that is in Jesus our Lord. What does that look like in practice? It looks like devotion. Intentional, informed, purposeful, persistent devotion. And that's maybe a way to kind of, in a sense, thread all of these ideas together as he works through Uh, this series of of exhortations. The section that we're going to look at actually consists of three closely related exhortations. And they pertain first to this issue of devotion to God himself and his word. And then secondly, devotion to God's people. Devotion to God himself and devotion to his people. And in fact, the two are inseparable. This should be nothing new uh, to us in this congregation to see that there's an inseparability between devotion to God and devotion to his people. How so? Because there can be no devotion to God that doesn't express itself in devotion to his people. 
because God has determined to have the truth of himself, his own life, his own likeness, bound up in a community of image children, all centered in the Messiah himself. If devotion to God is devotion to the God who is revealed and known in Jesus the Messiah, that devotion to Jesus is going to be devotion to his people in whom he has his fullness. You might say, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, I think we live in a time, certainly in our culture, where many Christians and increasingly more Christians, even as uh, you know, the whole COVID situation and everything has, has locked things down and, and created even more separation, but we certainly have a culture in which many people believe that they can live lives of devotion to God apart from vital devotion to his people. I can go up on a mountain. I can watch a video. I can stream a service when it's convenient and have my cup of coffee. I can read my Bible and study. Isn't that devotion to God? So the writer ties these two things together, and I think... Uh, I I hope that we'll both be encouraged by these things because exhortations always work towards encouragement, but also convicted, rightly so, as, as is appropriate to us. So the writer in verse 19 of Hebrews 10 says, since therefore, he's drawing in all of this instruction and even again what Christ has accomplished, this fundamental thing, of the perfecting forever a sanctified people, ultimately a creation set apart to him, gathered to him, summed up in the Messiah himself. But in view of that, he says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, which is to say his flesh, and having such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, a, a true heart. A heart defined by truth is the idea. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So just some initial observations about this because he provides a kind of backdrop for these exhortations. The first thing is that there are, even in the grammar, there are three specific exhortations here. Three specific exhortations that you see in verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24. The first two, as I said, pertain to devotion to the Lord, specifically our devotion to God in Christ, according to the truth as it is in Christ. The third is the devotion to Christ's people. The second thing I want to point out by way of just kind of a, a, an introduction or an initial consideration is that the writer grounded all three of these exhortations in the confidence that is ours in Christ. He didn't just throw them out there and say, go do these things. There's a framework, there's a context, there's a basis for them. And the basis for them uh, is this thing of confidence. Confidence that derives from Jesus' ministration as God's great high priest. And that ministration both refers to his self-giving, his offering of himself, but also the mediation that continues in the context of his ascension and his enthronement. You see these ideas, uh, Paul, in in Romans chapter 8, in his great doxology and, and, and exhortation to the saints, this confidence, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ, Christ Jesus who died Yea, rather, whose rays, seated at the right hand of God, is continually interceding for us. 
So this is a confidence that is grounded in something very specific. It's grounded in the high priesthood of the Messiah in the way that the writer has spent the last several chapters developing that. So these exhortations are grounded in confidence, but a certain confidence, a confidence that derives from the truth, not speculation, not something that makes me feel a certain way, not, oh, I just believe, I just think, I just hope. A confidence that's grounded in the reality of the priestly ministration of Christ himself. And flowing out of that is another observation, is that that confidence itself not only derives from Christ's priesthood, but that confidence has itself a priestly quality. Why do I say that? It's a confidence that enters within the veil, right? It's a confidence that speaks to a confident approach. And again, the writer's using the priestly language here. Having confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. This confidence itself, as it pertains to us, has a priestly quality. It's the confidence of an open approach to God through the veil of Jesus' flesh. And this may not mean a whole lot to us, but to a Jewish audience very early on, this was massive. Because there was no approach to God. Yahweh, the God of the covenant, dwelt in the midst of his people, but at a distance, remote, unapproachable. We've already seen how the whole high priestly thing was once a year. And then in a very tightly regulated, tightly defined way, and with a sense of fear and foreboding. God was enthroned in the midst of his people, but inside of a tent, under layers, inapproachable, unapproachable, inaccessible. This confidence is a priestly thing itself in that it speaks of an open, confident approach to God. Well, why do I mention that? Because the implied point here, which the writer doesn't say explicitly, but would have been clear to his readers, is that Jesus' saints share his priestly status and also his priestly ministration as sharers in him. He's the high priest who entered into the presence of God. He's the high priest who, in that sense, entered through the veil, not into a tabernacle on the earth made by the hands of men, but into the very presence of God, not with the blood of bulls and goats, with his own precious blood, with his self-offering. But he says now that results in us having an access into that same place. We share in that same priestly access status ministration. We enjoy the same fully assured, fully confident approach to the Father. In other words, the dynamics of Jesus' own priesthood in terms of the assured, confident, open, bold access to the Father is equally ours. Paul doesn't put it in exactly that way in Ephesians, but he says we have been raised up in Christ, seated in the heavenly places in him. Where he is, we are. We have been given every spiritual blessing in that realm that God inhabits in the Messiah. That's how this confidence should be understood. So when we take these three exhortations together, and I'm going to deal with each of them separately, they express ultimately that it's an exhortation to understand the truth and live into the truth in an authentic way, in a way that's characterized by intentionality, purpose, wisdom, but joy, eagerness, rest. We're not negotiators. Shabbat and shalom are yes and amen in the Messiah. And so Jesus' effectual offering and his ongoing mediation gives to us, gives to people more than simply forgiveness. It gives that, 
But it is also granted to human beings who come to him permanent, confident access to their God. The God who was removed from Israel and therefore removed from the world because God would be God to the world through Israel. It's granted them permanent, confident access to their God and Father and access in true communion to one another. That's where this is going to go. So these three exhortations, the last thing that I'll say about them all taken together is note the universality of this. Each one of them says, let us. He doesn't say, you guys need to go get this right. The writer says, let us. This is something that he's charging himself with as well. And the second thing is that he expresses all of these three exhortations in the present tense. These are to be characteristic of life in Christ. That's how he can include himself in it. This never goes away. This isn't like, uh, you know, your parents saying, go to the store and get me this stuff or, or go do this or go do that. Okay, you did it. Let's move on. This is expressing, again, the obligation of authenticity. It never goes away. And it's just as applicable to him, this writer, as it is to each one of us. It's universal. It's ongoing. It's defining of what it means to be in Christ. So we never get past these exhortations. We never get past them. This is a calling that defines our lives. So the first one then, as I said, is in verse 22. It's this, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Focuses on devotion that is oriented towards this reality of present intimacy with God. Let us draw near. And he grounds this in what he calls a new and living way. Remember again, priestly language. In Israel's experience, what did it mean to draw near to God? Well, it meant to go up to Jerusalem and more narrowly to go to the sanctuary, to go to the temple, to go to God's holy mountain, to meet with God there. But in the sense in which he's speaking, the actual nearness to God was to pass through the veil. There was a way to be near to God. And he says that this new way is associated with the veil that is Jesus' flesh. Remember the symbolism, even when Jesus yields up his spirit, he says, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is done, complete. Not I'm done dying, but that for which the Father sent me is fully accomplished, and the veil tears in the temple. And at that time, the gospel writer says, the dead came out of the graves and went into the city and testified of the Messiah. A kind of proleptic testifying um, resurrection that shares that what is the meaning of the, of the tetelestai, I have accomplished this. It means new access to God according to a new and living way, resurrection from the dead. Access to God through the veil that is Jesus' flesh. The idea being his own self-offering. And he says this is a new and a living way. The idea of new doesn't mean, um, uh, you know, a a new kind or, or newly minted or whatever. It means something that was previously unknown. Something that was previously unavailable. Something that has come into the picture now. Unknown, unavailable. A way that is a living way. It's the way that is living union with God. And so the idea here is that this is a living way that speaks of permanent presence with God. Just as the writer previously in drawing from Psalm 40 says, 
that behold in the role of the book I have come to do thy will, right? Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared me. In the scroll of the book it's written, behold, I come to do your will. In accordance with the Father's will enacted through the Son, through his self-offering, and now made living and, and effectual or, or um, um, animating by the power of the Spirit, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has now made their abode with these saints. Why do I say that? And again, the writer has already said, what is the effect, what is the fruit of Christ's priesthood? Perfection in sanctity. God has taken a people to himself. And as I said last time, this idea of sanctity has nothing in the first instance in its basic sense with how a person behaves. It's a status of being. Set apart to God, consecrated to him, taken up, in him. And so just as Jesus offered himself up once for all, so the passage through the veil is once for all. That's the ground of this exhortation to draw near. Well, what is kind of the substance of it? What is in this exhortation itself? Well, given the basis for this call to draw near, it shows that what the writer was really getting at was this obligation to rightly discern and to live out one's new relationship with God, the new relationship that has been enacted in the Messiah himself. Why do I say that? Because to read this on the face, the writer uses priestly language and, and this gives us the sense, I mean, our natural way of reading this is that I'm glad to know that whenever I need to approach God, I can do it. Israel's, Israel's priests were outside and went in, and they came back out, and they went in, and they came back out, and they went in, and they came back out. And so when we read this, and he says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he's inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh, we think, okay, I can go into God's presence, probably in, in prayer. I can reach out to God. I can go to that place when I need to. He's available to me. He's open to me. He'll hear me. But the writer isn't talking about that sort of in and out approach to God. The issue here is a true heart and the full assurance of faith. A true heart, full assurance of faith. In this living, abiding, enduring, perfected relationship with God. A true heart, full assurance, as opposed to fear, doubt, duplicity. All of the, the broken ways in which we interact with God. The way we negotiate with him. Our trepidation before him. An approach to God a relationship with God defined by a true heart, by full assurance, because Jesus has removed every barrier. And so whereas Israel's priests went in and out and in and out, and there was a cleansing that was required for them in order to go in, the priests had to be washed. They had to put on the priestly garments, then they went in. They went before God having been washed, their bodies washed with water, which represented a cleansing. That's what the labor was all about that was in the courtyard outside of the tabernacle and then the temple. But the writer's making the point that when you are in the Messiah, you are clean. Remember the prophecy of, of uh, Ezekiel in 36, the days are coming when I will wash them and they will be clean and I will put my spirit within them. I will cause them to know me, right? I will arise, I will act. And then the very next chapter is the putting of flesh on the dead bones and the regathering of the household of Israel in the Messiah. 
God says, I will arise, I will make you clean. I will wash you. Those who share in the Messiah are clean, but because they are clean in him, because of my word that is in you, you are clean. Because they share in him, that's how they are clean. And because their cleanliness is in him, they share his permanent place within the veil. Unlike the former priests, they abide permanently in God's presence. And most importantly, that abiding or that presence with God where he is, is not about a place, but about a way of being. How is it that we have entered through the veil? How is it that we have this this immediacy, this, this, this ongoing permanent intimacy with God? He's up there in heaven. We're down here. How does that work? What would Paul say? You are the dwelling of God in the spirit. We don't reach out to him out there The way in which we now have entered into God's dwelling place is that we have become his dwelling place. Jesus has gathered up people to his father. He has brought them with him, to use that priestly language, into the place that God dwells by gathering them up in himself, in his own resurrection life. To the extent that we think in terms of a God that's out there that we can approach now with confidence, we don't understand the point he's making. This is not about access to the God who's out there. This is about a permanent living intimacy with God because we are the dwelling of God in the spirit. We don't go looking for him We are the dwelling of that God. Saints, this is what it means to be a Christian. I say it all the time, but it easily is obscured by our lives under the sun. We don't think in this way day by day. God is out there. I'm here. And we have to discipline ourselves. This is Colossians 3. This is what a repentant mind is all about, or at least fundamental to a repentant mind. If you've been raised up in Jesus, keep seeking that which is above. What do you mean? Think about the pearly gates up there? No. You died. Your lives are hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in that glory. Sharers in the same glory. We don't go looking for God. We are the dwelling of God. And that communion, this approach to God that is bold and confident through the flesh of Jesus is this living intimacy, this communion with God within us by the Spirit. Do we live that way? These Hebrews needed to hear this because as much as good times can cause us to be distracted from that truth. The pressures and evils of this world very much can do the same sort of thing, perhaps even more so. And these Hebrews were facing that challenge. Their eyes and their hearts and their minds were drawn down to their struggles and to all the things that were happening to them. And they were losing sight. And Paul makes that a perpetual exhortation. Keep seeking Keep your hearts, keep your minds set where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep that, keep that mind, keep that mind. We live in two worlds at once, and that's the challenge that we have to hold in front of us. The second exhortation then, so the first one is let us draw near with all of the modifiers and qualifiers tied to that. The second is let us hold fast. The first exhortation pertains to our 
holding on to with assurance and confidence, a consciousness of this living intimacy with God. The second is oriented towards holding fast to the hope, the outcome attached to that, the future outcome attached to that. The the charge here when he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, he's not saying hold to your set of beliefs. Hold to your tradition's doctrine. Hold to even your own profession of faith in the way in our culture we tell people, when you're struggling, just look back to the day when you received Jesus. Look back to your profession. Find your confidence in the fact that you walked that aisle or that you were baptized or whatever. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying hold fast to that hope uh, because you've confessed Jesus way back when or because you know, you've embraced this particular tradition within the church or whatever. He's, he's exhorting them to hold fast to the Messiah who they've confessed with all that entails and all that that holds out to them in terms of the destiny into which they have entered and for which they will uh, see fully realized in their experience. They are to hold tightly to the person that they had come to know, the person they had embraced in faith, the person in whom and through whom this future destiny was vouchsafed to them. So the issue here is not their confession But what he actually says, even though different versions put this different ways, is he says, hold tightly to the confession of the hope. Not what you may think, not your own personal understanding, not your own personal hope, whatever you think that is, but hold tightly to the confession of the hope. They're objective things. The confession refers to the articulation, the formulating of this hope that God has put out there. In other words, it's binding ourselves to the truth of the future that God has already told us is the future that he's vouchsafed to us. Not our personal notions, but the truth of the future as it is in the Messiah. This hope is no mere whimsy. Whimsy in the sense of, well, I hope this, I hope that. I believe for every drop of rain that grows or that falls, a flower grows. It's not that. It's the hope that derives from the steadfast faithfulness of Israel's God. What does he say is the basis of this hope? He who promised is faithful. He doesn't say, hold tightly to what you hope it's going to be like for you when you get to heaven. Hold tightly to the fact that, you know, you're not going to have these problems anymore. And you're not going to have an old worn out body. Hold tightly to the hope that it's going to be wonderful when you finally go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Hold to the confession. It's this articulating and agreeing with God. That's the hope. And what's the basis for that? The God who has promised, and we have to know what he's promised, is faithful. And for Israelite Christians, Jewish Christians, that was huge. Because they knew from their own history that from the time of Abraham, God had shown himself faithful. When Abraham was throwing the covenant under the bus, God was faithful. When the fathers rejected God in in Egypt, God was faithful. Go back and read in, in Ezekiel where he says, I didn't do this for you, I did it for me. You forgot me in Egypt, I pursued you. I brought you out, not because you trusted in me, but for my own sake, for my own purposes. And when the, the first generation was all wiped out in the wilderness because of unbelief, I brought your children in, but did they follow me? No, 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 no. But I continued, I continued, I was faithful. 
And when you took all the good things that I gave you, my loving kindness to you within the covenant, and you used it to woo your other lovers, this is Hosea 1 and 2, what did I do? I pursued you until I won you. And he has done that in the Messiah. That was what I was praying about in the very beginning. God didn't just stand back and say, I'll wave a magic wand over this. He says, I'm going to enter into this and I'm going to dirty myself up with all of this. I'm going to deal with this by taking it to myself. Not at a distance, but by owning it myself. We don't want to get our hands dirty But we have a God who has gotten his hands dirty. And he has shown himself faithful, 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 faithful. He never forsook his promises bound up in his promise, ultimately back in the garden, but certainly to Abraham. And now in the fullness of times, all of those promises have become yes and amen in the Messiah. And if Jesus has fully vindicated Israel's hope, if he has shown God to be faithful to all of what he promised, if he has fully vindicated Israel's hope in Yahweh's promises, how much more sure is the hope of those who have embraced the God who has kept his promises in the Messiah? This is where we're going to go in chapter 11, right? The faithful who went before, who believed God for what he's promised, but didn't receive it. But we upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The God who has promised is the God who is faithful. And that is to ground our hope. But again, saints, we have to know what God has promised. We can't just claim the promises of God in the way that Christians tend to do, where they just, you know, scroll through the Bible and find God saying something and say, oh, it's in his word. I'm claiming this promise for myself. He promises me an abundant life. He promises to heal all my diseases. He promises to do this. He promises to do that. He's promised that his purposes for this world, bound up in the Messiah, will be fully achieved. And that human beings will be at the center of that restorative work. And that when the Messiah is revealed in all of his glory, then we will be revealed in the same glory. That's the hope that we hold on to. It's not the hope that things are going to get better in this world, the hope that God's going to cure me of this disease. And I'm not saying he never does that. But we're not clinging to hopes that originate in our own mind. We're trusting the God who's faithful, the God who has promised. And then the last thing is in verse 24, he says, let us consider. Let us consider. The first exhortation is oriented towards a confident ownership of this intimacy with God in Christ, life within the veil. The second is a confident holding on to the consummative realization of what God has already effected in the Messiah and that we are already sharers in. And then the last thing focuses on what does this look like in the context of the lives that we live now? if you will, devotion to Christ's body. These Hebrew Christians, as the writer, as every Christian in every generation, are obligated to persevere in faith and hope. But they are also obligated to nourish that same active faith and hope in one another. This isn't about my private personal spirituality. My study, my prayer, my walk with the Lord, my dealing with my sin. And I'm not saying all of that's irrelevant. But the faith and the hope, the confident intimacy and confidence in the God who has promised has to flesh itself out in the communion of the saints. 
This is what Paul means when he says, I labor with all the effectual power of the Spirit to see everyone presented complete in Christ. Go back and read Ephesians 4. He begins by saying, do everything, make every effort to preserve the unity of the body. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And this God who has created this new organism has gifted it in such a way that it would labor within itself and serve within itself unto the end that we would no longer be infants tossed and blown about by the waves but that we would in all things grow up into Christ who is the head, the body causing the growth of the body. In other words, we should be late. If if what he tells us to hold on to is this confident faith and hope, then we ought to be seeking to nurture that in one another. So, This verse is often used as as a way to make people feel guilty that they don't show up at the building every time the, the church building doors are open. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And I'm not saying that it's irrelevant and that we shouldn't, you know, that that it doesn't matter, but the point that he's making is much more profound than that. He's not saying maybe less than that, but he's saying a whole lot more than that. He's calling for a proper orientation of mind and heart that will express itself in an authentic communion of saints. A community of people living out their shared participation in Jesus' life with a view towards his work among them and in view of his goal for them internally and externally. Go back and read Ephesians 4 again. No longer living as the Gentiles do. So how do we comply with this? How do we comply with this? Is this okay? Well, you know, I better show up on Sunday. And if there's something going on during the week, I guess I ought to check in. Try to be there as much as I can. This is about, again, a mindset, an understanding, and a commitment, and a submission to the truth of Christ's body, to the reality of what it is. And not just because it's the body, but because it's the fullness of him who fills all in all. You can't be devoted to Christ and not be devoted to that entity in which he has his life and his fullness. This is why John, go back and think about 1 John. You can't love God and not love your brother. It's impossible. Not just because God says, okay, you want to show that you love me, then love that person. It's that love for God is love for that person. Because that person is the dwelling of God in the Spirit. The issue is not physical gathering. People can gather in the same room and not know each other and not care about each other. In fact, one of the draws of the contemporary church is just that. You can show up in the building whenever you feel like it and nobody knows you and nobody cares about you. You can be invisible. And they got the professional nursery staff and the professional musicians and the the, the latte bar and everybody's doing all the stuff and you get to just come and be a consumer if and when you feel like it and then you get to leave. And nobody's going to bug you and nobody's going to ask anything of you. Nobody's even going to care whether they know you or not. You, You can slide in late, you can leave early, you can do what you want. And if they don't see you for six months, nobody knows, nobody cares. That's largely the American church. And I know that's a generalization, but a lot of people are attracted to that because they don't want to be bugged. They live their life with the sign that says, no solicitors. This isn't about simply showing up in the same room. It's about a new understanding and approach to life. He He says, 
consider one another. And then he's, then he's, he, okay, what do you mean by that? What does that look like? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. What he's really saying here is there is an ethos, that's the idea, that characterizes human beings in their natural state. What is this ethos? The ethos of independence and self-concern and self-service. If a new and living way in the Messiah establishes a new relationship, a new living relationship in which God has taken up his abode in us. Jesus said, in that day, you'll know that I'm in my father and I'm in you and you're in me. This is not a remote God out there someplace. It's a new and living relationship with a new and a living and a vital hope. But it also establishes a new earthly reality as well a new way of being human. This is renouncing the natural ethos of independence and self-seeking, which we've canonized in American Christianity, and to live as the people of the new creation, a new human organism. And so that negates every natural expression the natural ethos, whether that ethos takes the form of natural community, unity around, uh, you know, a confession or, or music or a certain style of preaching or the neighborhood that I live. There's all kinds of ways in which we can do this thing called community that's under the sun. And he's negating all of that. Because this is a new creation consisting of male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. There is no distinctions in those ways. There aren't white churches and black churches and, and you know, Calvinist churches and Arminian churches. There isn't that. Not in God's economy. He's negating every natural expression of community, including independence and autonomy. But even if we're not thinking of ourselves as independent, we're seeking out something that looks like us, right? What the writer is calling for is the ownership of spirit-animated, Christ-shaped common union. That's what communion is all about, common union. He's exhorting these believers as also himself to devote themselves to authentically living out the reality and truth that they together as a, as a spiritual organism are Jesus' life and mind in the world. This true Christian communion, common union, therefore looks backward and forward. It lives in the, present, in the present a certain way on the basis of what God has done in the past, but also on the basis of what God is doing and will finally fully accomplish in the future. The summing up of everything in the Messiah. We're to view community as defined and established by what God has accomplished in Christ, but its marching orders are to serve that purpose of God in the world unto the design to sum up everything in the Messiah. It looks backward and it looks forward. So let me just sum this up then, uh, looking at these three points. Devotion to God, devotion to Christ's saints, and devotion in view of Christ's day. This devotion that he calls for is, is again, a, an informed, knowledgeable, disciplined ownership and living out of this intimacy, this new creational intimacy, this I and you, you and me intimacy uh, with the God who is fully revealed and fully known in Jesus. He's not talking about religious commitment. He's not talking about, you know, feeling close to God in some sort of abstract way. He's not talking about some sort of remote interaction in which God's up there, but he hears me when I pray. It's the living, perpetual communion of I and you, you and me. Communion with the Father in the Son by the Spirit.
And because we share in Jesus' resurrection life, we also, therefore, have the secure hope of that resurrection. If we are already sharers in his resurrection, we have a hope that sits in that same dynamic of resurrection and new creation. It's a secure hope. It's a transcendent hope. It's not grounded in what may happen in this world. If you will, our hope is that God will consummate what he has already fulfilled in the Messiah. And if we are sharers in his resurrection, that resurrection, that renewal will be perfected in our experience, but also in the experience of the whole creation. So here's my point with that. To the extent that we live as if God is out there, whether we view that in a spatial sense or whether we view that in a relational sense, that that God is related to me, but he's kind of out there. And he may be happy with me, he may not be happy with me. Have I done enough this week? Have I not done enough? Whatever. Negotiating, you know, this thing with God. To whatever extent we see God as out there, we contradict the truth and set aside the writer's exhortation. So we cannot do what he calls us to in verse 22 if we have the sense that God is out there. And I think most Christians do. He's up in heaven. He's up in heaven. And again, we struggle to live in, the, in this living, vital, conscious, determinative way of I in you, you in him, because we do inhabit two worlds. We are raised up in Christ. We inhabit the heavenly realm in Jesus, and yet we walk it out in this world, don't we? We walk it out day by day in this world that is still alienated from him. It's a challenge for all of us, and that's why the writer puts this in universal terms and why he deals with it in a present sense. This is an ongoing, never-ending obligation. We never get past it. Secondly, then, this issue of devotion to Christ's saints. Let me say it again. The reality that grounds and defines and even animates our devotion to God also grounds and defines and animates and indeed compels our devotion to one another. Whatever we may think about our devotion to God, if it doesn't look like true devotion to his people, And all of us have to take this arrow to our hearts. Because we all are busy, we all have this, we all have that, where we, you know, here's my needs, here's this, here's that. And and we get so distracted that we don't really bear the burden of one another's faith and hope and serving that cause relentlessly, persistently, getting our hands dirty in the lives of the saints. We just don't. But to the extent that we don't, We really don't understand and live out this reality of draw near to God with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. These two aspects of devotion are two sides of the same coin. One can't exist without the other. And then the last thing is this devotion in view of the day. All the more as you see the day approaching. The early Christians didn't really know, but they lived with the sense of expectancy. Paul himself indicates that he lived with the sense of expectancy, right? That Christ could, we could have his parousia at any time. There was a sense of urgency, a sense of expectancy, a sense that what we're experiencing day to day is really waiting for the veil to be opened up. The parousia doesn't mean Jesus is going to fly down out of heaven. The parousia means that there will be an unveiling so that now people can actually see what has always been there. Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. We just can't see him. He hasn't gone anywhere because he dwells in us and we dwell in him. The Father and Son have made their abode with us. But there is an unveiling. Parousia means that sort of an unveiling. And the early church lived with the sense of that. 
the immediacy of it, the urgency of it. And we don't do that. We look at the signs and we say, could things get worse? Jesus must be coming back. Or who's the Antichrist? Jesus must be coming back. Or America's out of control. Jesus must be coming back. But that's all the further we really think about it. We don't operate moment by moment, day by day, with the realization that the Lord who stands in the midst of the lampstands has never gone anywhere. We're just waiting for the veil to be open. And when he's revealed in glory, we will also share in that glory. But we got to live with that mindset. Christians are resurrection people, as I said on Easter, and therefore we're eschatological people. We are those who inhabit the renewal of the fullness of the time. We're the living, walking, breathing evidence of God's design and accomplishment and ultimate uh, consummative goal for his creation. We're the embodiment of the gospel in that sense. We are the living embodiment of the truth of what God has accomplished in the Messiah. We are the beginning of his new creation. And so our obedience to the truth involves our conformity to that renewal and its work and its goal. Commitment to intimacy, commitment to hope, commitment to one another. Christians love to talk about obedience, but we never really get down to what does that really look like. What is it to be obedient? It's to be conformed to the truth. What is the truth? What God has accomplished in the Messiah and what we're part of. If we would own the writer's exhortation, saints, if we would own Jesus' high priesthood in truth in the way the writer has so marvelously developed that, we must live in the present as it is determined by and stands upon the past and as it anticipates the future. I know there's probably some groaning when you see Torrance up here, but I I just got to read this to you. Here's what he says about this. Talking about, again, how Christians live out this reality in the world, the proclamation of new creation in him. Torrance says, the proclamation of this new humanity is the most explosive force in the world. The proclamation of this new humanity, this new creation that is centered in and has its substance in the Messiah and will ultimately take everything into its grasp. He says it's the most explosive force in the world, not only because it is proleptic, meaning as a kind of um, Uh, looking ahead to a, a, a first taste of the final judgment of holy love and a first taste to the new heaven and new earth, but because in it, the last things, the eschaton, the new creation, this renewal that God has brought, in it, the last things actually confront people creatively here and now in time and in space. It is therefore only as an eschatological community that the church can really carry out her divine mission in the world, which is to confront all humanity with the crucial truth of the gospel and so penetrate every aspect of human life with the power of the resurrection, both within itself and extensively outside of itself. The great missionary task of the church lies, therefore, both in the evangelization of the world, understood in that way, and in being the instrument by which the dynamic word, the living word of this gospel, intervenes in every form of human existence and action, social, national, international. Without the creation of such thoroughgoing fermentation in the world, the church will not be in a position to proclaim the gospel in any way proportionate to her great passion, nor will she have the power to alter the face of present human society so as to make it by the very power of God an instrument in the furtherance of his redeeming purposes." Are we just biding our time until we can go off to heaven? Are we just biding our time until things get better? Are we just biding our time until we can move into whatever the next thing of life? Is that what we're about? Are we seeing our responsibility, our privilege, our high calling, our mandate 
to be the living manifestation of the triumph of God in Christ. That's what evangelism really looks like. The, as, as he said in the, the video that we watched, the putting right God has put us right so that we can be instruments in his project of putting the world right. Doesn't mean we save people. Doesn't mean we can fix all the world's problems. But we are the living manifestation of the life and the power of God in the world. It's a high calling. But it's one that we have to keep setting in front of our hearts and our minds. Because we get busy with so many things. And we can even say, well, you know, I don't care about this world. I'm just going to, you know, wait it out. Draw near. Hold fast. Consider one another. Father, I pray that you would press these things upon us because we all wander. We all get distracted. We all get preoccupied with so many things. And it's very easy for us to forget why it is that having taken us up in your own life in the Messiah, you have left us in this world. That you have given us your spirit that by the Spirit's testimony in and through us, the world would be convicted of sin and righteousness and justice. Father, help us to see that all of our life is a living witness and that we don't need to go out and ring doorbells per se, but what we do need to do is we need to live out the truth of the Messiah and what he has accomplished and where this is all going. I know I I sound like a broken record, but these are things that we need to be constantly reminded of because they escape us. And none of us is faithful as we ought to be. All of us are Marthas who are busy with very, very many things, distracted by all sorts of things, chasing the feather, wringing our hands, Worrying, fretting, striving for the next thing, hoping to secure our our well-being in some sense. Father, give us grace and courage and persevering faith that we would truly be your instruments in this world. We ask these things, trusting you, drawing upon your grace and power in the Spirit, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.